I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. When I was a teenager, we were on our annual trek that we took every year. We called it vacation. It wasn't like vacation that my friends took, but that's what we called it. And we would drive from Kansas to West Virginia to see family. We were in Louisville, Kentucky, and it was very heavy traffic. And the cars in front of us had come to a stop, and my stop, my dad had just come to a stop, and we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, we felt that sickening jolt from behind. We had been rear-ended. Dad puts the car in park and gets out. And I got out because I was 16 and I knew everything, so I probably should get out. And uh, and I noticed that the gal that was the passenger of the woman driving was kind of cute, so I got out. And the police were called, and it was, I think, my first time experiencing a motorcycle cop, you know, and he came waving in. I thought, that was cool. And fortunately, both cars were drivable, but... She had rear-ended us, and so the police began writing out a ticket. And I recall the lady saying, but his brake lights were out. To which my sassy, arrogant, teenage self wanted to say, well, they're out now, but I didn't. The Holy Spirit put his hand over my mouth and said, shut your mouth, boy. You know, just be quiet. But the officer explained that in a rear-end collision, the oncoming driver is at fault regardless. It was sad. As you can tell, all these years later, that event stuck with me. And it's interesting, as I grew older and began to observe more of human nature, I realized how hard it is to admit fault. If you think about it, we've all seen this reality. When I was a youth pastor, working with adolescent boys, and it always seemed to be adolescent boys, and there would be a disturbance, and I would hear somebody go, hey, cut that out. And I would look at the student that I know probably caused the disturbance, and I would get, hey, what, 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 me? What? (laughs) I would see, I've seen this in professional football and basketball games. In football, the referee throws a flag, and you'll see the the player that the flag is thrown at going, oh, whoa, I didn't do it. You know, put their hands up. Not me, man. I didn't do it. It's just a clean play. We don't want to admit fault. And when we find ourselves at fault, there's a natural tendency to push it off to somebody else. His brake lights weren't working. She just pushed my buttons. He just doesn't understand me. There's another thing that we kind of push off in human nature. Sometimes when we want to feel good about ourselves and somehow excuse our behavior... We have heard, and if we're honest, we may have even said things like, well, I would have never made that decision. That was a foolish decision. I would have never made that one. Or, well, I may be bad, but at least I'm not as bad as. 
and you fill in the blank. Or, well, okay, but at least I've never robbed a bank or I've never killed anybody. I personally call that looking down the ladder. We look to find someone else whose behavior is a little worse than ours, so in some way we can maybe justify our behavior in the moment. Last week, we were in Romans 1. And last week at the end of Romans 1, we saw the Apostle Paul was probably drawing and borrowing from the wisdom of Solomon to describe what the general attitude and general beliefs from the Jews were toward the Gentiles. And as we saw, there's a lot of application to all of humanity there. But I wonder, I, I, okay, this is my little melodrama coming. I get it from my dad. <laughs> See what I did there? Uh, I wonder if as Phoebe finished reading what we know as Romans 1, I wonder if she paused for a moment. I wonder if she took a sip of water or maybe a sip of that good Roman wine and cleared her throat. And as she began to read Romans 2, there was this change that came over the room. Phoebe would have read, You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, what we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you not think you will escape? Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourselves for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law who also perish apart from, will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. As we said in that first section in Romans 1, Paul was outlining some of that Jewish teaching about Gentiles. And while that's true, 
and there was much we can learn, he is setting up his Jewish audience. See, there was a tendency for Jewish people to see themselves as spiritually privileged. What I mean by that is some of them believed and acted uh, like they believed that due to the fact that they were Jews only, they had a special in with God. Uh, Now, they were Jews because they were lucky enough to be born into a Jewish family, and they thought, there it is, I'm in with God. I was born, I'm the son of Abraham, and so and so, and so there there you go. I am, I have an in with God. And what, what Paul is beginning to say to the Jewish believers is not so fast. Not so fast. Yes, you're descendants of Abraham. Yes, you're recipients of God's law. Uh, But Paul does something here in the language that's very important. You'll notice in chapter 1, verses 16 and following, it's all they. They did this, they do this, they do this. But then when you get to chapter 2, all of a sudden it's you, therefore. And grammatically, that is a singular you. So Paul is not saying y'all, he's saying you. And in a sense, what he's saying is everybody hearing this to the, Rome, to the churches there in Rome, everybody hearing this, you better stop for a minute and you better take a good, hard look at yourself. One scholar said, Reading chapter 1 and going right into chapter 2 is like getting hit in the face with a cold bucket of water. Because you could imagine that person that felt that they were spiritually privileged because they were Jewish sitting back like this as they're hearing all that about the Gentiles going, yeah, take it to them, Paul, you're right, yeah, go. You, therefore, whoa, me? Who, me? What, me? I didn't do it. We need to understand and bear in mind that it was an attitude in chapter 1 that brought about the thinking of chapter 2. They neither glorified God nor gave thanks to Him. Therefore, their thinking became futile, which led to the exchanging of glory of the immortal God for images. That's chapter 1, 21 and 22. Chapter 1, verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Chapter 1, verse 28, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. The point is, thinking leads to action. And so Paul is is continuing to address this question, what is wrong with our world? And we need to realize that before we just point at all kinds of actions, we've got to look at the thinking. The fact is, you and I can look good, we can have all the religious trappings, and still have a heart that is against what God desires. Paul says, anyone who judges another is subject to the same standard of judgment. So you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. The word that's translated judge here is a word that means to assess, to evaluate, to decide, to determine. And the reality is, no matter how much we say, I don't judge anyone, we are all guilty of judging others. We're all guilty of that. And Paul, again, calling out those who thought they were spiritually privileged because they looked down on and decide that the Gentiles are worthless. And yet they were guilty of the same attitudes that the Gentiles were guilty of. 
Nobody looks kindly on anyone who calls out or points out a fault and then does the same thing. That's the height of hypocrisy. And it definitely should never be a part of a faith community. And in fact, Paul says in, chapter, in verse 2 of chapter 2, Now we know God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth. You see, our standard of judgment, our human standard of judgment, our standard of judgment is always flawed. But Paul says God's standard of judgment is based on truth. You could say it this way. God's standard of judgment is perfectly impartial. I would go so far as to say that we are very quick to judge by appearances, to judge by attitudes, to judge by stereotypes. I happen to be a PK. What does that mean? I'm a pastor's kid. I have been pretty open with you that that was not a stellar life. And now my kids grew up as PKs. And while Charlene and I did everything we could to make sure their lives were not as miserable as my life, we weren't able to be perfect in doing that. You say, what's the big deal about being a PK? Well, I'll tell you for a minute, because it has to do with judging. As a PK, uh, people in the church where I grew, grew up often thought they really knew me without really having gotten to know me. As a result, uh, I have been automatically, as soon as, as soon as you're with anybody, oh, I, I'm a, my dad's a pastor, oh, you're rebellious, or my dad's a pastor, oh, you're a goody two-shoes. You don't know me yet. I could be a little bit of both. I was. Some people thought they had the right and the responsibility. If me and my peers were doing something and they thought they needed to correct us, they corrected me. Uh, my peers were like, they got off, but they corrected me. I'm the pastor's kid. They know me. I got used for illustrations, so they, they think they know me. Sometimes I was expected to know everything there is to know about this book. Now, I'm like 14 years old, you know. I'm just learning to read, as it were, <laughs> you know. And, and, and it's like when I got older, I thought, what's your dad do? Oh, he's a lawyer. Oh, good. So tell me about this. I was expected to know everything. And if I didn't, I remember once at youth camp, they told the story, they, they charaded, okay, the story in the book of Judges, in the story of Deborah, where the general of the invading armies goes into a tent, and a woman comes in, and she helps him sleep, and then she pounds his tent stake through his head, that's gross, and, and all, and I was the one supposed to get that, and I couldn't get it. They were bad actors. No, let, let's, <laughs> let's go back to the open illustration. They just didn't put... I had no clue. Quite frankly, I had never heard the story before. Our team lost. Come on, Howington, you should know that. You're the pastor's kid. Even my dad, son, don't you know that story? Really? 
my personality and my gifts and my abilities often didn't, not, didn't matter to anybody. I was a PK. This is how you are. All of that is flawed judgment. And Paul says, God's standard of judgment isn't like that at all. God's standard of judgment is according to truth, to God's truth. It's based on truth. The word translated truth is a word that really means impartiality. God's standard is not based on your ability, your family of origin, your nationality, your ethnicity, or whether you're a PK or not. It's based on a standard of truth, and it's the same for everyone. Paul says, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Paul says, you're going to be held to the same standards. And you got to remember, God has shown you kindness and patience and forbearance, and he shows all of that. And the reason he does that is he wants us to change our ways and follow him. See, the bottom line is not only is our judgment flawed, but the second thing that I think Paul drives home here is actions matter. What you do matters. How you live matters. The bottom line, actions matter. Actions matter because as we saw earlier, they reflect your thinking. Actions reflect your attitude. They reflect my mindset. Paul reminds the the spiritually privileged that their heart attitude could be storing up God's wrath. Remember we talked last week, wrath is not just rage wrath is God's response to sin if my life reflects sinful attitudes and actions then I too am subject to a God who says I have to respond to that I have to deal with that I have to take care of that and Paul says this but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart now he is specifically focusing on a Jewish audience and I, I know that partially because at the beginning of verse 3, the question is asked is, so what advantage is there to being a Jew? <laughs> so, so you know who Paul's pointing the finger at here. And he's saying, because of your unrepentant heart, and you're storing up wrath against yourselves for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they've done. Paul says there are two characteristics that get in the way of a proper response to God. God's kindness, faith, and forbearance should lead to repentance. But some of us are stubborn. Just like the Gentiles whose foolish hearts were darkened, so when we think we know best, when we think our way is best, when we refuse to change for anyone else, because, well, that's just the way I am, and after you get my age, you don't change. That's stubbornness. And that kind of stubbornness is also reflective of a darkened heart. Paul says unrepentant. The word repent means to change one's mind. 
And once you change your mind, you change your direction. An unrepentant person is one who refuses to change their mind and consequently refuses to change direction. And those two major characteristics can make even the most devout person find ways to look like they have an acceptable life, yet apart from God. Paul says, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. We'll talk about that in a second. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then the Gentile. Actions matter. This isn't a new statement. I've said it before. How we live our lives from Monday to Saturday matters. I was telling somebody this week, I remember one day years ago, my dad was in a conversation with a neighbor. They were talking about our neighborhood. This, again, is back in Kansas. And, and we did have a, a very safe neighborhood. And uh, so safe that we rarely locked our doors. You know, and they're talking back and forth. My little sister is listening in. And she just blurts out, well, we always lock our door on Sunday because that's when the good people are in church, you know. And my dad's now trying to like moonwalk out of that one, like, oh, no, now, now how, do I, how do I kind of smooth over that? Uh, some of us live that way sometimes. I'll be good on Sunday. Uh, and if I go to church on Sunday and I don't fall asleep during the sermon and, and, and I, I shake a few hands and I maybe encourage a couple people, I'm good. I'm good for the rest of the week. I got a pass. Not so. God says, I see everything. God sees actions and attitudes. And he says, I, I'm going to respond. And while I would never base my entire theology of last things on these verses here that talk about God rewarding good and everything, uh, the reality is God will repay each one for what they've done. What we do matters. And, and remember, he's speaking largely now, kind of focusing on a Jewish audience. The, because of the law, because of the need to obey the law, Oftentimes, the question from a sincere Jewish person was, what do I need to do to gain eternal life? That was the question that the wealthy young ruler came and asked Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He responded by starting to list the Ten Commandments. And the, the ruler said, oh yeah, I've done all of those since I was a child. And so Jesus, okay, you're doing the right things. Now let's test your heart. Then go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And the man walked away because he was very wealthy. And Jesus had compassion on him. He was sad because that was the one thing getting in his way. Don't hear me telling you to do that. It's the idea that God does care about our actions because our actions reflect our heart. And so the point is, if your heart is in tune with God, your actions are going to reflect that. Paul says doing good and godly things is important. 
Because a God-centered heart reflects through the things that we do. On the other hand, a self-centered heart reflects a rejection of God's truth. It reflects pursuing unrighteousness. And, and, and when you think unrighteousness, we always think way down the bad line of stuff. You know what? Unrighteousness can just be being selfish. Unrighteousness can be just being arrogant. Unrighteousness can be seen in just hoarding stuff. This is mine. I'm never going to let it go. Uh, unrighteousness is anything that is outside of the boundaries of what God says. And so even a person who claims spiritual privilege, hey, I'm the son of a preacher, man. I, I got it made with God. No. God says that doesn't matter to me. Your heart now matters to me. There is no such thing as spiritual privilege in God's economy. God promises those who consistently practice unrighteousness are going to see his wrath. As well, and on the other hand, those who consistently practice godliness are going to receive his honor. And God is an impartial judge. He is not swayed by my arguments, by my logic, by my excuses. He holds all of us to the same standard, and that standard is his righteousness. And I can't attain his righteousness except through my faith in Jesus Christ, when he then declares me righteous. This last section of this part that we're dealing with, verses 12 through 16, kind of sounds like doublespeak, but the point that I believe Paul is making in 12 through 16 is simply this. Everyone will be held accountable. Depending on how your workplaces fiscal year runs, there's very much a possibility that either sometime last month or maybe uh, it might be in June as July starts the new fiscal year, you will sit down with a supervisor and you will have your job performance evaluated uh, and you are held accountable for how you did your job. And sometimes those go very well, and sometimes not so well. If you're a student, then you're held accountable on a regular basis. It's called a test. You go through a unit in social studies or in math, and at the end of the unit, you have a test. And that's in every education. Every educational level, there are ways you're held accountable. You get to a certain level, you write a paper. And it's a lengthy paper, and you're evaluated on how you reflect the material. Everyone will be held accountable. And, and, and so Paul makes some points here, and, and basically he says there are some standards of judgment no matter who we are. For instance, he begins verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. God's standard is it's not so that you, you know, if you sit and listen to me or anybody else teach the Bible, that's great. I'm glad you do that. What do you do with the information? It's not those who hear, it's those who do. 
Uh, and and in, in, uh, he, he goes on, he says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they're not, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. Uh, the point in verse 13 is, are you, in verse 13 and 14, are you acting on what you've heard? And Paul uses this illustration. We talked about it last week. There's that sense of fairness. Everybody has it. Everybody has this sense of what fair is. It's, it's built into us as image bearers. Uh, even a, and, and so Paul says there are times where people who are not Jews, who haven't been instructed in God's law, who don't know God's law, and yet somehow, unbeknownst to them, they're acting in accordance with God's law. They would say, well, I'm just being a good person. And Paul says, yeah, but in, in being a good person, they're actually doing something that is in accordance with what God wants. You know, I'm just being honest. I'm, uh, great, because the tenement can't. Ten Commandments say, you shouldn't lie. Thou shalt not lie. So I'm just being honest. You know, I'm just being obedient. I'm being obedient to my parents. That's great. You know, that's, that's, that's the, the, I'm honoring my parents. I, so you see that. And, and that's actually reflected. You and I could make a list today of all of the really, really good organizations out there. Great charities that do amazing work helping people and, and do uh, some amazing things, and yet they would never allow themselves to be called a Christian organization. And yet, in a sense, they're doing God's work of compassion without acknowledging, or no, without acknowledging Him. And God says, I'm okay with that. It's not the end all, but you know what? When compassion is showed, God, God is reflected. It may be that it is that sense of fairness, that sense of equity that God uses to maybe draw some people to himself. If we read this text, we come away with saying, okay, what do I do? What's this mean for me? I put my faith in Jesus, so where do I fall in? There's coming a time for all, especially all who believe, for all who trust God, for all who have a faith relationship with Jesus, when they will be held accountable and examined by God. Don't see this as some kind of cosmic movie theater where there's a giant screen and everybody in the universe gets to see your life played out and all of your thoughts and all of your motives. I don't see that. And don't see this as being called into a room and God is sitting there and he turns on the light and puts it on your face and says, all right, it's not that. Because God's holding us accountable. He holds us accountable for our actions, but he holds us accountable as a righteous and patient and, and loving God too. And, and he's not going to let us get by with stuff, but he's also not going to shame us. God will judge our works. 
And the, the Bible is clear in other parts. We will suffer loss for our failures. But those who know Jesus, there's a divine filter, namely the blood of Jesus Christ that will ultimately bring forgiveness and restoration. When we sin, we still can come to him, confess our sins, and he will forgive us. When Satan accuses us of sin, Jesus steps up and says, no, no, that's, that's my child. I, I died on the cross for their sins. They're forgiven. We're just getting started in the book of Romans. We are going to have stuff to think about every single week. And I'd say my caution for all of us this morning is don't see yourself as spiritually privileged. None of us in this room, nobody in my hearing is any better than anyone else. We're all, we're all sinners. We all need God's grace. We all need God's forgiveness. We all need Jesus. We all have a spiritual responsibility. We're not spiritually privileged, but we have a spiritual responsibility. Paul says, verse 16, this is going to take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Do you have secrets? When I went through counseling, the, uh, the man that led our program, now the late Dr. Larry Crabb, we broke up, they broke up the whole counseling program into small groups. We called them counseling labs. I had the fear and the privilege of being in a counseling lab with the director of the program, Dr. Crabb. I once told somebody he knows more about me than I'm comfortable having many people know. You know, And yet, I'm good enough that there were some secrets about me he didn't know. God says, that's not so with him. He knows your secrets. That word secrets, it's an interesting word. We get our word cryptic from it. We get the science of studying codes, cryptography. Uh, we get it from that word. And he says... There's nothing hidden. Nothing is hidden from God. We all struggle with our motives, if we're honest. Uh, we all struggle with, why did I do what I did? And, and so what do we do? How to respond? What do I do with all this? Let me give you just, and they're not even going to be on the screen, so you're going to have to listen closely. Let me give you a couple things to think about. The first thing is, when we get down to the bottom line, I would say to anyone, make sure that today you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, that you believe he died on the cross to pay for your sins, that he rose again, that he's returning, that you have put your faith in him. Because that is step one. That is foundational to beginning that process of discovering what it means to live a life that's pleasing to God. I would say secondly... Honestly, ask God to help you to learn to daily submit your motives to Him. Oftentimes when I'm helping somebody through a major decision, I will look at them and say, what, what is your goal here? What do you want to accomplish? What do you hope to achieve? You want to go say this, this, and this to somebody? What do you hope that will accomplish? We ought to be thinking about that. What are my goals? And bottom line, if I do what I'm planning to do, how will God be honored? And sometimes I fool myself into thinking I have right motives, and I don't always. Tied 
closely with that last point is a prayer I would encourage you to pray. It comes from Psalm 51.10. It's the prayer that David prayed when he had been caught in his sin with Bathsheba. And in verse 10 he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Our secrets and our motives can fool us. We are going to be held accountable. Our actions matter. And we serve a God who judges impartially. It is rare. In fact, this may be a first that I read something I read on Facebook this morning. But it is really good. And it's really short. The other day I was hanging with a friend. This friend calls himself a Christian, but he doesn't always act like it. Some days he's on fire for the Lord. Some days life's struggles seem to get the best of him. So as our eyes met, I really wanted to say something about it to him. But I decided to just let the Lord speak to his heart. Knowing nothing I could say would ever possibly have the impact that the Lord making himself real in his heart would make. So I prayed with him. And finally, after some time, I winked and walked away from the mirror. See, it's really about looking at me first. Who am I before Christ today? How am I living before Christ today? What are my actions telling about my heart? For we serve a God who judges impartially. And it's not about me judging you or you judging me. It's about me judging you. It's about me evaluating you and you evaluating me. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the reminders that we see here today that do pull us up short, that that challenge us. May we be people whose actions reflect our faith. May we be people who carefully take time to think through our motives. May we be people who pursue you. In Jesus' name, amen.